Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from summertime on Long Island, Jeff. On today's show, we talk about Buck, Steve, London, game times, and do I still agree with myself? But first, the All-Star rosters have been announced, and only Pete Alonso makes the team. There are eight Braves on the team, which can make you nauseous. Francisco Lindor made it to phase two of the voting, but lost to Orlando Arcia despite having better numbers. And he still hasn't been an all-star as a Met. Nimmo was a viable candidate, and I was rooting for him, but it's only Pete. I'm happy for Pete. I hope his hands healed. Best of luck to the polar bear. Yeah, Pete. Home run derby as well as the all-star game. It's kind of fun to have a guy who you can almost put in there like clockwork because he's made it, uh, what, 19, 22, and now 23. So the only year he didn't was 21 when there was an all-star game, and he went to the home run derby anyway. So it's nice to be represented. Uh, know you have that guy. Listen, the Braves have eight players going. We have one player going. The Braves have been eight times better than the Mets this year, so it sounds about right, sadly. We've already proven with our most recent show that just because you don't make an all-star team as a Met doesn't mean we don't believe you're an all-star as a Met. So in some universe, Francisco Lindor and Brandon Nimmo are Met all-stars in our heads and hearts. But uh, just Pete, good luck, Pete. And this is the first all-star game since 2017 where the Mets won't have a pitcher on the all-star team. That seems strange, but makes sense this year. Pitch better, get an all-star. It's been a week, but we haven't talked about Steve Cohn's press conference. Neither of us are sitting in a high chair with a bar top, but Steve had a press conference last week where he accepted responsibility. I'm not sure how much he said, but it showed accountability. I'm sure that the Wilpons wouldn't have done this. I think that Fred Wilpon would have made an anonymous call to our favorite reporter and said the front office is not happy. And Jeff Wilpon might have done the same. He might have tweeted something, but neither would have shown the accountability that Steve did. What did you think? Well, Fred was front and center circa 1993. It was actually a breath of fresh air when the team was having some very difficult public relations problems. So he had his moments, but that was a long time ago. The important thing is that Steve's the guy there now. And yeah, Steve was accountable and available, which is really all you can ask for in a situation where you have a team playing far below where they were projected to play far below the level of a team that was designed to the best that you can design a team, construct a team to compete. And they were not competing at the time. Did he have answers that are going to make any difference in the short term? Not really, nor would I expect him to. I think it was just a matter of saying, I'm aware of what's going on. It bothers me. It bothers us. And we're going to do our best. And details beyond that would have been surprising and perhaps counterproductive because you, know, you, you don't necessarily want to say the ships sail at dawn and give away your position and that sort of thing, not, not to take this too seriously. You never want to see the owner of the team in the course of the season unless it's some lovely ceremonial thing like the unveiling of a statue or the retirement of a number, that sort of thing. 
if the owner of the team has to sit at whatever kind of chair at whatever kind of table in front of the press and open himself up to questions it's not because i invite you all to ask me why the team is doing so well that's never the reason so again after the wilpon era it was refreshing just as steve having the resources and using them was refreshing I got one thing for the long term out of it, which was, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, I don't know if he used the word not sustainable, or I just, he just indicated he didn't like the situation. But he said, like, I, ca- I can't go on losing money like that. I, I don't think he meant like, I can't go on. I'm not going to be able to feed my family. But he made it personal, I noticed. He said, I'm losing money. And I think it sort of dawned on him that this isn't necessarily just throw money at the problem and reap rewards and no matter how many resources you have if you don't feel it's going for a good cause or going going to make your organization more successful and which in the case of the Mets means winning games and going to the playoffs and all that stuff it's not as worth it to you I think this season has given Cone pause, as it should, by the way. I don't think he ever really made it his policy to say, you know, the Mets are all in on every free agent who ever comes along. He's been quite open about we want to build a farm system. We, you know, we want to have sustainable success, all of that stuff. I, I just thought that the, the choice of phrasing was interesting to me. Other than that, there's nothing the owner can do. There's nothing a lot of us can do other than the players. I think the fans expected Steve to be like the Steve Cohen that we read about in the book Black Edge, which the first half I highly recommend, not the second half. The second half is boring legal stuff. The first half is about Steve Cohen's reign on Wall Street. That Steve Cohen is not this Steve Cohen. Some fans expected that. I think the owners expected that. I read something last week where that book was passed around between the owners, or at least excerpts were. So they were expecting a hot-headed New Yorker there. And he hasn't been. He wants to show he's not. Some fans want him to be like George Steinbrenner. He definitely doesn't want to be like that. So I think he wants to show patience while showing accountability. And he definitely did that at his press conference. There's one quote I took down because I think it was very important that we hear it. I'm a patient guy. Everybody wants a headline. Everybody says, fire this person, fire that person. I don't see that as a way to operate. If you want to attract good people to this organization, the worst thing you can do is be impulsive and win the headline of the day. And I won't say I stood up and and, and shouted hallelujah, but that reassured me because that's no way to run any kind of organization. You don't want to show up for work on whatever day. And and again, sometimes it's, it's futile to draw parallels between a baseball team and well at my job this they don't stand for this your job my job is different from their jobs let's be clear on that at the same time we're all human beings and we don't like uncertainty hanging over our heads in the sense that we have a bad week doing something well we're kind of screwed now because the boss is angry and the boss will just like throw us out i don't think that's productive and i was really glad to hear him say that i did not read the book about him on wall street i'm not sure how many people did i credit you for doing your research so you know he's conducted himself like a calm person who wants the mets to win and has a little something to do with positioning them to do that different from the rest of us i don't know why anybody would want anybody to act like George Steinbrenner. Certainly not the classic tabloid George Steinbrenner of the 70s and 80s, which eventually ran its course. 
Uh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't looking for it. Our barometer is how much not like the Wilpons is Steve Cohn. He's not like the Wilpons. I mean, he may be friendly with them. Remember, Fred still owns a tiny percentage of the team. Uh, has has continued to uh, keep a toe in it. I don't think it's an active toe, but you know, I don't think there was ever any sense that Fred didn't want the best for the Mets. I think uh, we just he just didn't know how to get there, or was hesitant to allocate resources, or whatever. You know what? He's not he's not the guy anymore. Nice to see Steve out there. Nice to see Steve not being impulsive. And again, half a season. I mean, I'm sorry. I I know half a, a lousy season is half a lousy season. And doesn't bode well for the second half of, of the season suddenly being much better. But my God, we're Mets fans. We've lived through a lot worse than this. Have we? That was June is historically bad. It was down there. It was down there again five years ago. They had a slightly worse June if we're just, you know, looking at numbers, which is pretty sad. <laughs> that, that, no, it's, this was a horrible June. But you know what? It was one month. It does not remove the underpinnings of what they're building here. It may indicate that adjustments need to be made along the way. And I think seeing Steve last week and seeing others in the organization address issues, and I guess I'm thinking mostly of Billy Epler because he spoke to the press too, uh, shows they're conscious of that. And they're not whistling past the graveyard. They're not, hey, everything's great. What are you talking about? We we won a lot of games last year. We have a big payroll. They understand. And you can only trust the people who are there to be trusted right now. So it's not the worst ever. It just isn't good. And maybe there's a, a school of thought that says, don't settle. Demand excellence every step of the way. But you know what? It's an everyday game with human beings playing it. To quote Buck Showalter, the other guys are trying to win too. Sometimes they beat you. You hope to get into a position where that doesn't happen as often as it has. So again, to the point of Steve Cohn being a raging fire or whatever, that would not have helped anybody. And at best, there would have been a uh, rush of dopamine or whatever it's called and saying, oh boy, somebody's doing something. But as long as it's not, everything's great. Leave me alone. Don't ask me any questions. I, th- I think we got as much as we could out of Steve Cohn last week. So you disagreed with my special comment a week ago Monday. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I respect that you wanted to do it. I thought you were in good voice, presented it well, and I knew where it was coming from because I know you. But I think the idea of holding the manager's feet to the fire beyond, hey, do better, make better bullpen moves, like anything else, it just feels premature to me. I want stability right now. Uh, I don't want stability in fourth place. I understand that. I don't want to shake things up every 18 months. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of having gone through managers and general managers. I know there is a place for improvement. I know that there are frustrations on any given night. I know that June was not one of the better months. I still have enough faith in Buck Showalter, manager of the year, reigning manager of the year, to be the guy who can steer this team the very least through the rest of this season. So you get to the end of September, the beginning of October, you say, wow, that was way worse than we thought, even worse than we thought Back in June, hopefully we didn't waste our time with Buck Walter because he wasn't fired. I just didn't see it and I didn't feel it. Again, it's not, it's not great to compare your team to your team at its worst. And those who listen to this show know that we are visiting our franchise through the threes, the years that we're having anniversaries for. 
So I've got 1993 on my mind right now, which I'll save for a future episode. I mean, this isn't 1993. I've had people say to me, this feels like 1992, worst team money could buy. This feels like 2002. God, that was, it really doesn't to me. And maybe that's just me. Maybe because I've been through so many of these seasons. Maybe it's because I have not lost faith in these players as people to the extent that I can, can feel what they're about. For the most part, I see players who are not so much bad players, certainly not, and not even players constantly playing bad they haven't played well and they've made mistakes i don't know what goes into that i know we spent a lot of time in 2022 praising buck as you mentioned in your comment praising buck for being detail oriented and having everybody thinking ergo why do they make stupid mistakes now i couldn't tell you why that is and i couldn't tell you if that's because buck shoulders overloaded them with information perhaps more so than like buck has like left them alone i thought it was telling i when i heard the post-game comments with pete alonzo the sunday night game against the giants and he was going on i, I don't remember even if there was a question that led to it specifically or it was just Pete train of thought and he said how much how important Buck Walter has been to him and how much he loves quote talking ball with Buck Buck knows so much he's like a walking baseball encyclopedia now there could very well be people in that clubhouse who were thinking my god Buck Walter he's out of touch he doesn't know how to communicate with me or maybe there's people who say hey hey Buck seems cool with it whatever I went over for it, but it's all right I get Again, you're, you're putting yourself in, in too many people's minds to put that together. Again, I, like you, I have watched managers be dismissed in the middle of a season or step down in the middle of the season and felt like, well, it's come to this and I understand why. Uh, I've had enough of Jeff Torborg. I've had enough of, I keep coming back to Jeff Torborg. I've had enough of Dallas Green. Dallas Green left in the middle of the year. Uh, you know, George Bamberg, we talked about him leaving in in 83. I really just don't get that sense. And I know that wh whatever it was Buck did against Philadelphia, which is what spurred you. I know it was like, a, it was a lousy loss. I wrote about it being a lousy loss. I wrote about the, the bullpen stuff too. But to me, it, it just doesn't add up to, we need to do this. Because that's a real, that's a real step, man. That's a real, well, we're desperate now. Everything sucks and the manager is responsible for it. And I honestly don't believe that. And I'll, I'll just... Leave it with, with one more thing. I, I'm just not comfortable telling people they shouldn't have a job anymore unless it's something that's really you know, unless it's somebody I, I report, report to who I don't want to deal with, of course. I don't like playing God. I, 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 like, I like pretending I could make all-star teams out of retired players and things like that. But I, I don't like being the guy who says, Buck Showalter, who has spent a lifetime in baseball, who is well regarded in so many ways, who just last year helped us in so many ways. You need to be gone. You need to be shamed. You're a disgrace. You're ruining my life. I just wasn't feeling it, to be perfectly honest. I could be disavowed of that by circumstances to come because that's baseball for you, baby. We do take our cues from the standings. Uh, a a well-quoted head coach in the New York area. This is this man has been quoted a lot lately. Bill Parcells, you are what your record says you are. The Mets are a sub-500 out-of-the-playoffs team right now, and that's everybody's responsibility. Is it Buck Showalter's responsibility to such an extent that it is A, unfixable, and B, you can't have this guy around anymore? I don't feel that's the truth. Now, I still stand by my comments, even though when I said them, I never believed that Steve would do it because I know that he wants to exercise patience. In fact, I think Buck's going to be the manager next year, even if they don't make the playoffs this year. He's under contract for next year. And dismissing him from his job is not going to put him on the unemployment line. He's under contract 
through next season. I think he's mismanaged games, and we saw one even subsequent to my commentary. We saw last Thursday, he pinch hit for Beatty when a lefty was in, and Beatty struggles against lefties. I get it, but it was the sixth inning, and he put in Danny Mendick, so he's not exactly putting in a top, top pinch hitter. And then it got to the ninth inning, and Devin Williams was in, and he so he's a righty, so he pinch hit Guillaume for Mendick. Guillaume shouldn't even bat for Guillaume. So that was the result of his sixth inning pinch hit move for Beatty. Buck was asked about it after the game, and he said, we're trying to win games and develop players at the same time. That's kind of the challenge up here. No, up here, you're trying to win games. This isn't AAA. That comment infuriated me, and I think it's typical of his mismanagement of games. That's why I called for and stand by my comments. And if you want to go back and listen, folks, it's only eight minutes. I will say something that I did see before, which is Davey Johnson taking Dwight Gooden out after five innings, let's say, uh, his first few starts saying, in so many words, I can't push him too much for developing him. So I understand where Buck is coming from. I know it's a different circumstance, but that concept of we're here to develop players and win games. I see what he's saying. Buck is still here, and Greg was there on Saturday. He saw a wonderful game. The Mets won. The weather was good. It was a quick game. And except for Gabe Kapler's last challenge, Greg would have gotten home fast. Greg, you saw three home runs in an inning. Was that an in-person first? I really don't know. Tried to look it up. Tried to uh, go through baseball reference, do it by inning, and figure out which games I'd been to. I know that it was three home runs on Saturday, and that was a lot of fun. I have this hang up about solo home runs. They were all solo home runs, which is if the Mets only hit solo home runs, they usually find a way to lose. So I was really delighted when I realized they had four runs and one of them came on a Tommy Pham double. I know it, it doesn't really make a difference. Runs are runs. The Mets earlier this year had a game where they uh, hit four home runs in one game. They're all solo home runs and they lost six to four. Putting that aside, Alvarez, Nimmo, Lindor, all their own character. These home runs, Alvarez down the line. I thought I was watching a foul ball because people around me were acting all excited about foul balls all day. Nimmo up to the beverage porch. Uncommon power. And Lindor, you know, again, people are still settling in from the first two home runs. And Lindor takes it to, I guess, right around the bullpen area. You feel like you should be winning by more than three runs at that point. So it was nothing, nothing, and now it's three, nothing. We've hit three home runs, and it was still just three runs, but they made it hold up. So hallelujah! It's funny you you ask me, have you ever been to a game with three home runs in an inning? It's like just one of those things I don't track. I track starting pitchers every game I've been to. I can tell you uh, the notebook I keep. But my first Justin Verlander start, and that was exciting to me. That was meaningful to me because as much as Justin Verlander has been. Meh, throughout the season i'm watching a not just a prospective hall of famer a guaranteed unless they find some skeleton in his closet hall of famer starting for the mets and i realized i hadn't done that in person since shea stadium since pedro martinez his last start as a met i have not seen max scherzer pitch for the mets in person uh, somehow we've missed each other and i so lots of Jacob deGrom, but I'm not feeling all that uh, confident yet that uh, he will come back from Tommy John surgery and will be able to look back on his career and say, I saw Hall of Famer like 22 times, or however many times I saw him start. So that's the sort of thing I, I from, from the game standpoint, we won. Verlander started, pitched well, and Gabe Kapler uh, issued an asinine challenge. That's the word I keep coming back to, even though he's perfectly in his rights to do it. 
And it was an asinine challenge because the game was going so quickly that if he doesn't give the challenge, I can shake hands with my friends, say thank you very much for inviting me, and return to being a commuter, which is you know what you become after a game if you take the train and get to Woodside for the train that was going to take me home. And because the game lingered with the challenge, and that meant that the express that leaves City Field had to wait because it doesn't leave until X number of minutes after a game. And because they're doing construction along the seven line, I get to watch the train I wanted to be on pull away from me at Woodside. And I was not too happy with Gabe Kapler, but I, I don't want a, uh, a Mets win that I went to to be defined completely by uh, my personal agenda and grievances with Gabe Kapler. So yeah, nice win at City Field. That Alvarez home run was impressive. Oppo power by the Mets catcher. And you noted a banner outside with a black cat. Some people would think that's a deep cut in Mets history. To us, it's not. Tell us why that's important and where you saw it. You go down the right field line outside City Field, which I don't usually do. Uh, really, I usually go through the Rotunda entrance. A couple of times this year, I've gone through the Gil Hodges entrance, had business there. Once uh, down the other end, I think it was the Casey Stengel entrance. For the hell of it, mostly, I decided maybe the line will be a little shorter at the right field gate. Uh, and I realized, oh, I haven't been down here this year. They've got a bunch of new banners up. If you've been to City Field, you know that since late in the 2009 season, after people like me, but not just me, uh, complained a lot that there was very little sign of which team played at City Field because uh, your friends, the Wilpons, were a little late in getting together a Hall of Fame in a museum and things like that. They put up some banners, which were very welcome, of players and managers and figures that fans would embrace. And they've had that. They change them out every couple of years and they emphasize them some years. They don't some years, some years. They just spend all their banner space on telling you about promotions. Okay. Uh, I'm looking around. I realize, wow, they've done a nice job. They have banners on the lamppost for all the Hall of Famers, new ones. And it's just wild seeing you know Gary Cohn's picture up there and the other new Hall of Famers along with the classic already in Hall of Famers. And then I look over at the building itself where they have the parade of banners, we'll call it. And they have you know, Tommy Agee making one of his catches in the World Series. And they have Edwin Diaz being uh, dumped with ice water after a save and things like that. And I just see just the cat, the black cat, which if you're not new to uh, New York Mets baseball, you recognize the significance of the black cat if you're kind of scratching your head because there are new Mets fans all the time. Uh, September 1969, the Cubs are in town. Big, big game. Can the Mets hold off the Cubs? Or really, the Cubs are still in first place at that point, but the Mets are rising. Cubs are falling. Let's say, can the Mets nudge the Cubs a little more and take first place? And what happens? A black cat out of nowhere walks in front of the Cubs dugout, which in those medieval times, 1969, people still fought and perhaps still do today. Ah, bad luck. It's a bad sign for the Cubs. And it's always been a, a matter of conjecture whether that was a random occurrence or some clever member of the grounds crew knew where to get a cat because Shady Stadium had its share of uh, cats underneath the surface uh, and then threw them out there and the cat was just scared 50,000 people. Who knows? But the black cat is one of the signature, say he is this, this I don't know, it was a he, but for argument's sake, he is one you know the signature animal <laughs> that's history. Uh, all due respect to Homer the Beagle from 1962 and Metal the Mule from 1979. The Black Cat became part of Mets lore that night. The Mets beat the Cubs. They won that series. They were in first place a night or so later. 
and the black cat lives on and is invoked every September 9th. The black cat is up there. He's on a banner. There's no explanation. There's no nothing that says 1969 on it. Nothing that says cat. Nothing that says luck. Just the black cat. And it's one of those, if you know, you know situations. And I don't think there are too many Mets fans, certainly our age, who don't know. And if anybody who doesn't, boy, uh, somebody will tell them because this has been passed down from generation to generation. It was just such a wonderful Mets image to see. And just remembering how 14 years ago when the ballpark opened, uh, how hard it was to get the Mets' attention to say, you know, we appreciate Jackie Robinson Rotunda and the Ebbets Field style architecture, but, you know, the Mets do have a history and it would be nice if you'd start displaying it and they kind of in dribs and drabs began doing it. Now we're at a point where it's not surprising that you would see the black cat pictured outside the ballpark, but it's still gratifying. And maybe if I'd passed it, a dozen times already this year, because I'm not sure if that they put that up on opening day or it was like a recent refurbishing. Uh, maybe it wouldn't have struck me, but it was just one of those things like, whoa, Black Cat, isn't that great? That was the antithesis of Gabe Kapler making me miss my train. That was right up there with Justin Verlander and the three home runs. Uh, that was a highlight of going to the game on Saturday. It was announced that the Mets will be playing in London, June 8th and 9th, 2024. Huzzah! The London series will feature the Mets and the Phillies. My first thought is it's inconvenient. My second thought is it's good for the brand. I always look at things through the prism of the Mets, and I'll paraphrase a question our parents asked in a different context. Is it good for the Mets? The Mets think so. I don't think you can be dragged across the pond against your will. So I assume that they entered their, their names in the lottery to be picked or they were asked and they said okay however it works what they had the cardinals and cubs there recently they had the yankees and red sox a couple of years ago now it's two different teams who we we know from personal experience there are mets fans in the uk and i assume there are phillies fans in the uk and there are baseball fans in the uk and there are americans who would welcome the opportunity to plan their trips around seeing the mets and phillies in the uk so it's good for baseball good for the brand i suppose i don't know how lasting an impact uh, there is from something like this i guess you're of an impressionable age and suddenly this man they call the polar bear shows up and he hits b balls a long way and you fall in love with that maybe you're a Mets fan for life over there is it good in terms of somebody will be jet lagged and somebody will have a problem with their accommodations and they'll come back and maybe they won't be as fresh in 48 hours or whatever that's the curse of being popular and <laughs> When the Mets uh, were asked to do this, somebody must have thought, hey, the Mets are a draw. That's who we want. I mean, they're not asking. Maybe they will if they win the World Series this year. Nobody's asking the Marlins to go do this. I guess the Marlins have done things similar. You know, they played in Puerto Rico. I wasn't looking for it. I don't think I would have been insulted if they hadn't asked, but I see why they did it. And it's, it's just part of uh, you know the Rob Manfred festival of trying to make baseball popular with people who don't really care probably that much. But I do, I do know there are Mets fans in the UK and I hope they get a chance to see this. And yeah, I hope, hope travel doesn't take it all out of them. Good for the Mets. I don't know. Win the games. According to Chartable, we have some listeners in the UK. If so, write to us at nationalleaguetown at gmail.com. The Mets have, have been concerned that their logo 
is not seen by tourists as part of New York. Tourists see the Yankee logo, think that means New York when it really means the Yankees. So this is a chance of extending the brand. I looked at the Cardinals and Cubs schedule for this year to see what the Mets schedule might look like when the 2024 schedule is announced, I guess, in August, if last year is repeated. And each team played a day game on Wednesday on the East Coast. So picture the Mets with a day game on Wednesday at home. They immediately flew to London, five-hour difference from the East Coast. They had Thursday and Friday off. I'm sure there were pictures of the players at tourist attractions and holding youth clinics. They played Saturday at one o'clock. It was on Fox. They played Sunday at 10 a.m. our time on ESPN. And they immediately flew home, restarted the regular part of the season at, at home on Tuesday. So we look forward to that next season. And we look forward to the future via the MLB draft, which is this Sunday and Monday. Now, if you want to tune in and watch the Mets pick, don't tune in right away because the Mets' first pick of this year's draft is not until 32 because they exceeded the balance tax threshold by more than $40 million. So they lost 10 spots. They picked 32nd and 56th, and the Mets have seven picks in the first four rounds. One thing the Mets can't do is trade up. And if you didn't listen to the K-Cast or whatever nonsense it's called, they're, they're horrible alternative to the main broadcast on ESPN where the Mets were on on Sunday. They have a terrible version of the Manning cast, which is fun. This is terrible with bombastic Michael Kay and Alex Rodriguez. You can think about him however you want. None of it's going to be good. But I listened to the first inning when Scott Boris was the guest because he carries so much influence. And he said that teams should be able to trade picks. And I agree with him. If Steve wants to jump up into the 20s and trade Tommy Pham, which would help a team that's not doing well immediately, why not? Why can't they do that? It, they, it protects the owners against themselves. That's the only reasoning. Do you have any problem with them trading up? No, not really. They do in other sports. And, you know, you can shoot yourself in the foot, I suppose, trading your future for your present and your present doesn't work out. Well, now we don't have any draft picks. And, you know, it's a different kind of currency than in baseball. You know, it's kind of like when they talk about a salary cap. It's like, just don't spend as much as you don't want to spend. And I'm not encouraging teams to be cheapo. Because we know how that can be, but it's not the player's fault. <laughs> and I, I assume that whatever it is that uh, Boris is looking for out of this will enrich his clients and himself. And that's his job. He's not really my editorial director, so I don't really care that he had anything to say about it. But I'm fine with the idea of uh, shaking things up. And if somebody wants to trade uh, their 20th pick to get that backup infielder they need, have at it. I'm, I'm sure there's a downside I'm not seeing. I haven't really thought about it that much. To be honest, the, the draft is one of those things. It comes along like you. I wait for the Mets pick. I wait to be told who this person is and what there is to look forward to. And then I figure I'll see you in three years or you know, however long it takes. Or you get a Kumar Rocker situation from a couple of years ago. But one time, I actually knew who the guy was who they tracked, and they uh, didn't sign him. And it probably worked out from what I gather about his injury situation. But that's neither here nor there. So um, you want to uh, you want to trade a draft pick that would add one more layer of uh, the sky is falling to Mets discourse. But sure. And before we run out of time, I wanted to talk about game times. 
all we hear about lately is how quick the games are going. It doesn't seem like Met games lately, except for the Greg Saturday game, are moving with alacrity, maybe just because the games have been so bad. They seem like a slog. But Greg, you mentioned the 4.10 start time on Saturdays felt perfect. You had your morning, you had your afternoon, and you still had your evening. The Mets games, most of them, start at 7.10. They had four games against Milwaukee, and they all started at 7.10. There was no day game in sight. None of them started at 6.40. Some teams have embraced the 6.40 start. We see this week that Arizona has. The Yankees haven't. Some teams have. Some teams haven't. The Mets have not. They have one 6.40 start against Texas, but I think that's because of time zone logistical reasons. Do you care? 640 to 710, not that much. First off, I want to say thank you for alacrity. It's a wonderful word. It always sounds good. (laughs) The Mets have not been playing with alacrity uh, at 640 or 710. I guess to the extent that I would have uh, something to think about. On a weeknight, 710 works for me, but I'm used to it. I think if they, if they suddenly said, hey, now we're a 640 start team, I'd say, well, okay, I get used to it. And I'd probably be one of those people. So remember when they used to start at 710, it was so much better. Uh, you know, you, you still have that sort of nostalgic bent toward 805 sometimes, which seems insane. <laughs> but they used to uh, start at 805 because games only took two, two and a half hours and it made all the sense in the world in 1965 or whenever. And then it became 735 or 740. There was one year where they switched them back and forth depending on the time of the season. That it was 7 o'clock, I think April, May, and September. And the summer it was 740 or vice versa. So they'll do their studies and they'll figure that out. I'm, I'm not yearning for 640 or 635 when they do play a team that starts and it feels rushed. But that's because I'm used to it. 4 o'clock on a weekend, on a Saturday in particular, just hits it for me for whatever reason. I always feel like if I go to a one o'clock game, I feel like I'm rushing around too soon. And I just hate Saturday nights as games. I mean, I guess it's okay when they're on TV and I've got anything else to do. But it's, you know, again, we grew up with Saturday afternoon as the rule in places like Pittsburgh and St. Louis, we'd be watching on Saturday nights and it felt bizarre. And I've never shaken that. I went to a doubleheader last year. I think it started at 3 o'clock. And I was thinking, this is nice. <laughs> You're not going to start a game at 3 o'clock normally, but it was just a, a make-up doubleheader. And there's hardly anybody there, which I kind of like. You know, I, I, I concomitantly want the, the ballpark to be full of cheering Mets fans and to be kind of left alone. So there's no satisfying me, honestly. Maybe, again, 4 o'clock just feels very specific to Saturdays and... 710, it's the routine. But if you want it at 640, I, w- I won't stand in your way. Most of the time, not always this year, most of the time, I can't wait for the Mets game to start. So I'd rather go at 640 than 710. I wonder if they've done studies. It's harder for people to get to the ballpark from home or work, but we'll see what how they feel about it next year. This year, they haven't. You know, you, you were going over the prospective schedule for the London trip and two days off here, two days off there. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't mind that this year. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> mind two days without Mets baseball. And then next week, two days in a row without Mets baseball, the week where they played the Subway Series. And I think there have been a couple of other weeks like that where off Monday, off Thursday, and in the past, that's been like, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to watch the Mets, which you know, I may say something about me. I think it says something about the Mets this year, too. And I, I guess we hope uh, that they, they leave us wanting more as opposed to less. I think it says something about them and this season because we are all in. And we hope you were all in on this episode of National League Town. If you want to get in touch with the show, we're on all the socials. 
plus nationallytown at gmail.com. We thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify. The ships sail at dawn.